welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, welcome adventurers to episode 116 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast, the last episode of 2023. The new year is upon us. This is just Patrick. Hey, and it's King Scott here. King, we've got a busy day today. In fact, we got a bunch of games that we're talking about, so there's no discussion topic, no questions, no two I games know. one game leave. It's going to be games, games, games all episode. It's, we had fun at PAX, now then responsibility is jump back in and takes all the fun out of things. No, no, just kidding. This is always a blast to do this. We love playing games. We love talking about games. And the idea of being able to share them and share them with people when we see them in person is absolutely awesome. I got some game talk, some simple game, some some bantery game talk that needs to well, be Well, please, discussed. banter away. Uh, first of all, Terraforming Mars and Dog Park, both on BGA. They are? I was trying to find Terraforming Mars, but I couldn't find it. Or is this one those super special people get to? It might be super special. It's in alpha. It might be in beta now. So the way that it works is when a game's in alpha, you have to like apply to be an alpha tester. Ryan was one. And he had a game that was in alpha. And I was like, well, how, how did you get to do that? And he sent me the link. <laughs> and it was, you have to have played 50 unique games. And I, so I looked on my list and I was like, oh, I'm at 49. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately like learned something else and like just clicked through it. One of those like, this is a two minute game. <laughs> there you go. I was like, all right. So, and then you have access to the alpha games, things that are in alpha. Whenever you click my games, you have that menu. It's like, here's games that you've played recently. Here's things that we think you're going to like, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Here's strategies. One of them will say alpha games, beta games. The alpha games are things that might not actually get released in the full, you know, the fully fleshed out mode on there. But they're testing them to see if it'll work. I think the vast majority of them do end up getting created for sure for, the, for all the commoners on BG. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Terraforming Mars is on there, and you know what? It's it's a lot of fun to revisit a game that I think at this point it's really easy for us to say, "Oh yeah, I remember that. That was a fun game, but it's been surpassed by." And then you go back and play, and it's like, "No, it really hasn't." This game is great. Yeah. <laughs> having yeah. not played it now, aside from like solo on the app, having not played it on the table for a few years, it's kind of cool to get back to. And have you played Dog Park yet? I have not. I have that. I added it to my games that I like, but I do want to play that here soon. But uh, going back to the Terraforming Mars, you're right. It's one of those games that I think has fallen into the category of mostly playing solo. That during the pandemic and having the app and all those other kind of things, oh, I'm just going to pop it up here and play this while I'm waiting for my car to get fixed or something like that. Mm -hmm. I need to bring my big box out. We need to play a full-on big game with the 3D tiles, all that stuff here soon. We really should because you've had that now for a couple years and I get oh, yeah. to see it. And I've never played with the big decked out version. That sounds like oh, a good Oh, it's good. It's good. 
got in a Kickstarter, uh, kind oh. of. And I say oh, kind okay. of. It might have been a game found. Uh, I don't even remember. But I, I've been waiting for the Shards of Madness expansion for Wonderland's Oh, War. yeah. Yeah, so this box comes in. I, I didn't even get, like, the tracking. Hey, this is on the way. It probably was in an update, and I don't pay attention to the updates. But right. this box shows up. And then I open it up, and I see – or I saw that it came from uh, the company that makes Wonderland's War. I was like, oh, I know what this is. So I open it up with all this excitement, and – it's a box that's about the size, you know, those deck boxes for Magic the Gathering that people put yeah. their deck. It's that size. I was like, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't overly expensive, so I'm not, I'm not griping. I was just like, you know, when you have a Kickstarter incoming, you're like, there's going to be this coffin-sized box, and I'm going to have to hide it from my wife. It's going to, there's, it's going to be like Christmas morning. Now this is more like a stocking stuffer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, with everything that came in Wonderland's War, I mean, that was huge. You would mm -hmm. expect something big like that. But, hey, you're supposed to expect great things from small packages. I'll tell you what else is coming back around, Scott, is I've got an itch. I've got the need to paint, right? I've been oh, thinking oh, oh. I want to paint Wonderland's War. And I said after uh, – uh, what was the one that we did? Uh, Wolfenstein. After Wolfenstein, I was like, yes, never again. Yes. I'm just not going right. to do this ever. I want to do it again. I, like <laughs> – that's a thing, I think, is getting the bug oh, to, yeah. I want to sit in the quiet and just put the brush to the plastic. Hey, I tell you, I don't know how many hours would go past with the Starship Troopers soundtrack in the background, mm -hmm. me hunched over my painting board, painting Space Marines for hours. Yeah. And I would just put that thing on loop and just go over and over and over and just be lost completely. Like, yeah. That belt needs to be painted. Wait, that buckle needs to be painted now. Oh, that purity seal needs something. So it's always something that goes on. It drags you in to want to paint something. Oh, what the else. hell's a purity seal? That sounds like something oh. that you get that like promises you're gonna save yourself till marriage. No, purity seal. I what was I saw those at Origins. I almost bought one. It's just like this seal that they have on their armor saying how much of a pure uh space marine they are kind of like medals or whatever showing off what they've done mm -hmm. and they have like a little seal and then there's like a paper saying what happened to them oh my god you just stick those purity seals all over everything gray knights should have them all over their bodies completely but then i digress scott i'm guessing you've never played terraria on playstation or nintendo switch that i have not no okay interesting well Terraria is going to be coming to Kickstarter or Game Pass. It's going to be coming to crowdfunding at the end of Q1 oh, okay. or the beginning of Q2 2024. Terraria was one of those kind of open world games where I think like, you know, in Minecraft, every kid plays Minecraft yeah. and it's you oh, just sure. build stuff and it's an open yeah. world. It's like a sandbox. Terraria was kind of like that, except for like you'd have day and night phases and in the night phases, things would like come and try and attack you and, and wreck your shit, right? Oh, of course. How, how things normally go. They got a board game coming. And this one, I, I wanted to bring it up because it's coming from Paper Fort Games, who you probably don't remember because this is one that I did on my own. It's They're the guys that did Cosmoctopus. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Okay. And the guys that did Cosmoctopus, they're in with the guys that run Stone Sword Games, James and Paul. Uh -huh. So if things work out right and fall into place just right, I'm thinking maybe we'll get like a sneak peek courtesy of the guys across the pond at Terraria the board game coming in 2024. I'm kind of excited for that. 
that would be very cool because that's one of the things that's really surprising. The number of games that have come from video games and had a board game element put into it. Mm-hmm. They've been really picking up popularity. So I'd, I'd be inter- interested to see this. A lot of them are hit or miss though, aren't they? Uh, I've heard some oh, true. mixed reviews on The Witcher. I know Dark Souls got, uh, the Dark Souls board oh. game got beat up pretty good. Like, do you know what grinding is in a, in a video game? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, grinding, well, I th- yeah, they call it grinding. Grinding's, uh, okay, so in one of those games where you're going to level up. Ah, see what I did okay. there? Uh, you start at, say, you start at level one, and progressively, as you gain experience points, you get to level two and level three. And every time you go up a level, your stats are going to increase. Like when you okay, swing sure. your, uh, when you when you punch someone, instead of hitting for four damage, it now hits for six damage. And right. some of those games will have, like, skill trees. It's like, hey, you reach level 15, you get to unlock a new skill. And mm-hmm. it's got to, okay, so cool stuff. Grinding is when you come in to, say, a boss fight, and you just can't beat this boss. He keeps pummeling you. So you go back in, like, right outside of town, and there's, like, those starting skeletons or just some random Okay. And you just beat the hell out of them until they're all dead. And then you save your game, you unload, you know, go to a different area, let them respawn, beat the hell out of them again. It's grinding. You're just killing stuff to grind out some experience points to get better so that you can beat that boss. I remember Dark Souls, the port game, one of the issues that people had with it was that they actually implemented grinding <laughs> into oh, a board game. Oh. Either by design or unintentionally. And that's one of the things that kind of kind of rubbed people the wrong way, we'll say. Yeah, yeah, I... I can think of things that make a board game enjoyable, and I can safely say that does not come in, like, the top five. (laughs) Doing the same thing over and over? Nah. Yeah. No, 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 no. I do not feel that. Two funny things, and we'll get on with our recent plays. Okay. You have got to see the video first. I, I went down the YouTube rabbit hole. You ever go down the rabbit hole? I don't even want to talk about the rabbit holes I've uncovered sometimes. So you know, you know, you click one oh, thing and it leads God, to the yes. next. And at some point in my journey down a rabbit hole last week, I came across a video for a song called Starfleet by, mm-hmm. by Brian May. Brian May's from yes. Queen. He's a yeah, big poofy. Well, they all were then, but he had big poofy hair and he was the uh, He the still guitarist. has big poofy hair. A fantastic musician, but adventurers, if you have five minutes today, do yourself a favor. You have to watch the video for Starfleet from Brian May. It's it'll it's life changing, life changing. Now I've seen the actual show. There was an actual show for this, mm-hmm. and I want to say it was like on Tubi or something like that. And uh, I mean, it's goes back to the old days of Thunderbirds. Joe 90 with Super Marionation they used to do with Gary Anderson shows in the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s. Thunderbirds, now that one there is a crazy one as well. Have you ever seen Thunderbirds? I have not. Oh, Thunderbirds are go. That's a big thing there. They have Thunderbird 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. They don't come together like Voltron. They are their separate things. Okay. But they're part of, I believe it's International Rescue. So they're always on the lookout to save people as much as they can. Everything is done with marionettes. Interesting. This is is sounding terribly awesome already. (laughs) Or awesomely terrible. It truly is. But as far as side gigs go, with seeing Brian May doing Starfleet, another thing you got to check out. And one of my fraternity brothers introduced this to me back in college. Um, uh, uh, Oh, why... Okay, you're going to have to cut this part out here. <laughs> nope. Oh, what the hell is his name? The guitarist for The Who. Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend. 
He did a musical. Okay. He did a musical based on the Iron Giant. We're not talking about Tommy. No, 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 no. No, this is just Pete Townsend did a whole musical based on the Iron Giant. This needs to be watched immediately. There's a, I still have the soundtrack. I still have the CD of the music. It is fantastic. But it opened up in England, and I think it only lasted like three weeks or something like oh. that. It is truly amazing. And you got to take a look. There's a video for You've Got a Friend, I think it is. It's like the opening song All right. for uh, The Iron Giant. But yes, as this far as be found on YouTube? Go, oh, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. You know what we're going to have to do is one of these episodes for a random discussion topic after we're all, you know, like how we kind of put them at the end of the episode for folks that want to hear us babble about things. We're going to have to do like a top five, this is retro. It's kind of terrible. And yet that's what makes it amazing. Think like Flash Gordon. You know what I mean? Oh. Uh, we need to come up with our, uh, you would be the man for this because you know a lot more about that stuff than I do. But, you know, some of those old things, dude, I was, uh, to me, Led Zeppelin's the best band that has ever graced the earth. And okay. I got the song remains the same, which was their like, kind of, we're going to make a movie using right. music. And like, they did the best they could with what they had in 1972. Right, but here I am, you know, I'm like 25, you know, however old I was, 20 years ago. You're I'm almost, this. 50, okay, I was going to say, it's almost 50 years old now, if you think about it. Exactly. Exa well, I'm watching this in a day and age where we have like Marvel, you know, we have CGI graphics. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. They're going to combine Led Zeppelin with, with video. And you watch this thing from the 70s, it's like, well, this is trash. <laughs> But it wasn't for its time. You know, I, I understand right. that. It's just, you you come in, if you're a fan of older music, you come in with these huge expectations of what you're about to witness. And usually it's a, a bit disappointing. Maybe not The Wall. Dude, uh, if you've watched The Wall, haven't you? Oh, yeah. 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 That, that one's actually pretty captivating. Well, yeah. We've uh, we've gone off the, uh, off the deep end here. Oh, yes. One yes. more thing, and it involves our dear friend, Sir Jack. <clears throat> oh, yes. what do you do now? He friended me on the arena of board games. Board game arena. Oh, oh, okay. I want you to lean in for this one. All right. Sir Jack's username. Uh-huh. Sacky Poo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so jack uh his name is famously not jack it is zach and his username is zacky poo <laughs> it's like did your wife make your account what is this <laughs> oh my goodness all i know now is i feel bad for him if we see him at a convention oh my god it's like the one guy that's made a friend out of us that we didn't know prior to the mm. show and we're just picking on him every episode because my voice has a tendency to carry. Mm -hmm. So I can just imagine being on one side of convention hall, seeing him on the other, and yelling, Zacky Poo. <laughs> He'll know. <laughs> Let's well, we digress enough. Let's move on to our recent plays. Yes, sir. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Why don't you go first there? All right. We've been playing a crap load, a metric ton of arc. Nova, you and me, and I feel like we've brought oh, up yeah. Ark Nova a whole lot lately. But uh, this time we're gonna we're gonna dive a little bit into Marine Worlds because I had a chance to play that. But before I get into oh. that, I just want to point out Ark Nova. <laughs> if you didn't know, Scott is really, really good. It's a mm -hmm. very good game. Uh, the more I play it, I, I'm up to something like 200 games now. It's got tremendous strategy. 
It's just so oh, many yeah. different things that you can do. I'm finding new openings, new combinations every time I play. Cards that I was like, this card is trash. If I see it in my opening hand, I might be like, you know what? I'm going to try and make this work. And right. it won't work out for me. But then I'll play against someone else who makes it work. And I go, oh, I see the light now. Every card has a chance to be a bomb in the right situation. Some of them are, we'll say, I don't want to say filler cards, but like Fennec Fox, just a random, oh, he costs oh, yeah. one, he's cheap, get something in there. And then some of them are almost always going to be good for somebody at the table, one of the elephants, one of the rhinos. They're, oh, yeah. they're just yeah, strong definitely. cards. And then there's these slightly more narrow cards that are looking for the right situation, mm -hmm. uh, migration recording, things like that. And uh, I'm just, I'm having a blast playing it and finding new things. And lately, uh, one of my favorite, favorite openings. I, I always like to get sponsors in the opening hand so they have something to do with my sponsorship, uh, that, that action whenever oh, I take sure. it. I'm trying to switch. Anytime I see one of those uh, release into the wild projects, it is a very good opening. If you can go with uh, make a structure, well, make an enclosure and then mm -hmm. put a critter into it and then release it into the wild using that yep. first association action instead of getting one of the uh, one of the partnerships or or one of the universities just release into the wild yeah you lose some income but in releasing you're going to get bumped up some number of points on the conservation track you're going to get to upgrade a card immediately, and you're going to get an unlock from the left side of your board. It can be the extra five bucks, but instead you go for the uh, all of the all the boards have an association worker there, so you can unlock the association worker. So if you're in that first round before the break for an extended amount of time, mm -hmm. you still have a second action with your association worker. So we'll say you take a partnership next turn, and when I say next turn, after the break. You've got two association workers. You're going to be able to use one to get the second partnership to upgrade a card again. Oh yep. my goodness. It's, it's so, it's just another, it took me 200 games to see it and start <laughs> being able to utilize it. And it's very dependent on the opening hand, but that's the kind of thing that happens with Arc Nova. And we're, I'm not quite there yet, but there will be a point where it's like, okay, I can iron out. This card is a top tier card. This is a tier two, a tier three, Right. Some right. cards are just better than others. And we're starting to get to a point where if I see a certain card, like one of the Waza special assignments, uh, I, I can mm. see that card and I go, it's so narrow that I kind of know I'm not going to be using that card this game. Exactly, yeah. So when I do like a draw three pitch one, it's just automatic. I don't even have to think about it. I'm almost at that point where I'm ready for some new stuff to be injected. And it has been in the form of Marine Worlds. Have you played it yet? I have not. No. Well, Jason and Jenny came over and he's like, hey, I have Marine Worlds. I was like, yes, brilliant. Scott, this expansion brings uh, a few things predominantly that are going to change the game. First of all, you've got 54 new cards, most that are in some way going to uh, to, to be animals, things that are going to go into that main deck. Sure. Uh, and they're going to okay. interact with the new expansion material. I should hope so. <laughs> of course. <laughs> now, you would think, okay, now wait a minute. If I'm trying to get, uh, we'll say, primates. Uh, there's mm -hmm. 54 more cards in the deck and they're all water stuff. I'm not going to get my primates. What do they do? They have a little like wave symbol in the top right. So in your river of cards in the middle, mm -hmm. you can select them. There are six. If you flip a new card and it's got the wave symbol, that means right. burn a card from the front again and pick oh. another new card from the front. So it keeps that river moving a little bit quicker, right. which is not it, that. In fact, that's a byproduct of what they were trying to do. I think they did this just so that the deck isn't diluted. You still have equal yeah. chances of seeing the things that you saw in base game. Also, in doing that, they keep that river moving a little yeah. bit quicker, which is really cool because now suddenly you see, 
we'll say in a game, if you have the option of, uh, of 50 different cards that, that are seen from start to finish between all the players, now you're going to see like 65. You know what I mean? Right. It's a good yeah. extra jolt that, uh, that gives you a lot more to work with. One of the biggest changes though, and, and perhaps my favorite that they implemented was everybody starts with the same five action cards. They have the same sure, backs yeah. for upgrading and the differentiation that you can have from one another is what you opt to upgrade, which I think for most people, that means everything but sponsors. The order matters, but more often than not, since you can only upgrade four cards, the one that gets left behind is sponsors. Not always, but I find mm-hmm. it's like 70% of the time the case. That said, the new action cards, what they do is they... Everybody before the game is going to have an option to pick two of them. And they're going to basically be action cards that are specific to you. For example, like when I was playing with Jason, my build, instead of just being the generic build card, it was a build plus one. So if it's in the three slot, I can use it as a build four. And then whenever I upgrade it, it's going to let me have the engineer ability like immediately, just on the back. It's like, it's still a build plus one, but now you can build the same thing twice. You know, an upgraded build, oh, you can wow. be like, okay, I can build a power five. I'll build this four enclosure and I'll build a pavilion. Well, right. Now it's like, well, I'll build five. You're allowed to go three enclosure, a pavilion and another pavilion. Kind of cool. And they have that for each of the action cards and there's different ones for each, which I like. Love that they included some new goal cards to replace some of the, we'll say underpowered ones from the original. Sure. One of those goals, there's two of them that stand out. They're like, what the hell? If you start the game... <laughs> You've got Naturalist Zoo. It gives you mm-hmm. a point for every six open spaces. Right. You're never going to get more than like two points on that thing. Oh, You're never no. going to get four. Yeah. If you have 24 open spaces, you didn't play enough animals to do anything. Mm-hmm. The other one is the sponsorship. Um, I've taken the map, the Hollywood map, where you get three bonus sponsor cards. Oh, yeah. And upgraded the sponsor thing. And I am going to get to 10 sponsors. I don't care about the win. I want to hit 10 sponsors. <laughs> yes, yes. I've you have that. to work to get to 10 sponsors. And it's just not worth it because you're you're foregoing better plays to get to 10 sponsors. So they actually, they modified that. And coincidentally, I had that card when I was playing in the game with Jason. Um, that was one of my goal cards. And I think it, I think they modified it to like seven or eight to get to the four points. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's better. Or they at least made the three, far, the three points on it far more attainable. But Marine Worlds, I'm glad to say that it's to the table. Still absolutely blown away by how much I'm loving Arc Nova. It's one that... I put it in my top 10 when we did our episode 100 and I don't see it I don't see it ever going away and Marine Worlds is the perfect type of expansion. It adds to the game without taking anything away, without uh, diluting the we'll say the purity of the game. It, what does it have? What you call it? It have a purity belt. <laughs> Oh, yeah, a purity seal. A purity seal. I yes. think I'm thinking chastity belt from uh, Men in Tights. Oh, you remember he's like, call the locksmith. Oh. <laughs> when we have the chance to play this, uh, you know what? It'll eventually come out on BGA. You know they're going to mm. put it there. I'm sure you and oh, I are going to yeah. play the hell out of it. Oh, most definitely. Definitely. Well, I had a chance to talk to Mitch at PAX from WizKids. Mm-hmm. And in our chat with with Mitch, he was asking me about different games if we played. And he said, have you played Super Skill Pinball? And I'm like, no, I haven't. Well, we'll make sure you get it. Okay, okay, no problem. That sounds good. He knows that after talking with him a little bit, I like Star Trek. So he says, oh, have you played the Star Trek version of it? I'm like, no. No. We'll make sure you get it. I'm like, come on, Mitch. You're being too kind here. So I got a big box. We got uh, Mage Knight with it. We got another game I'm going to talk about here in a minute. And we got the Super Skill Pinball. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm like, okay, that's awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Then I got another box, the Star Trek version of Super Skill Pinball. So I got a chance to play this. It's uh, designed by Jeff Engelstein. So once again, a name that you know with different board games and everything. In Super Skill Pinball, you are playing pinball. And it's really quite interesting. Now you can play up to four people. But the thing about it is, this really shines as a solo thing. It, it really turns into being four-player solitaire, if you will, but everyone follows the dice. And well, it's let a roll and ride, the right? dice. Yes. Okay. And the nice thing about this is, they are all done on dry erase. Sweet. So you don't have a big pack of uh, paper where once you tear it off, it's done, and you can't play it anymore. This one here, you play it, whoop, wipe it off, you're ready to go. So in Super Skill Pinball, you roll two dice. Well, you have your pinball sheet right in front of you. Well, you roll your two dice, you start at the very top, because, of course, we all know gravity goes from top to bottom, so you have to follow the angle of the pinball machine coming down towards you. Mm -hmm. Each time, you're going to have different selections to pay based upon what numbers you roll. So you roll two dice, you select one of those die. Now, if you're playing a multiplayer game, everyone selects their own die. You then scratch off or color out the square of where it hits and just like in real pinball if it's those ones up at the top you have to get them all lit up so you get the one marked off well you leave it on there because you want to get back up there and color in the other two it comes down in the next section you roll those dice again you pick another one you fill in another spot then the part that i always truly truly hate in every pinball machine i've ever played is getting down to the bottom and you have that panic moment where you see the ball going straight down the middle and there's no way your flipper's going to hit it. Well, luckily in this, you do have a way of mitigating that with coloring the diff different numbers. So those flippers will catch things a little bit easier. But once again, once you color it in, that number's gone. You can no longer use that. So you have to be careful what number you choose. The interesting thing is they even worked in how you could nudge the pinball machine sometimes. Yeah, where the you bump. bump it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whenever you do that, you can bump it and change the number to whatever number you want on the die face. So if you have a two and you really need that five, well, you can mark down a nudge there and mark down a three because the difference is two to five. You're able to fill in the five. Everything's fine. It comes back down again. Well, you need that nudge again. Well, if you need the nudge that's going to be in between one and three, well, guess what? You just tilted the machine. The game is done for you at that moment there. Yep. So it's really cool how they work in that tilt mechanism with it as well. This was really quite interesting because you don't really think of pinball being really aligned with board games but they still do work in the excitement of seeing where you get that ball going and what direction do you want it to go how you would like catch the ball sometimes with a flipper and then you'd flip it up to get it into the direction that you want whenever you play an actual game there is that in this you can actually work things out now i know there's like three different types i believe of uh, the super school pinball the star trek the original and I can't remember off the top of my head what the third one is. So there's a lot of these out there, and it's very simple to teach. And it's something there that's a great way of, if you're on vacation and you have a rain day at the beach, 
hey, let's just sit around the table and play this real quick until the rain passes or we decide to do something else. It's a great little game. The markers to keep track of where you are are little half silver balls. So it looks like the pinballs in the machines. Really, really clever way that they've done this. The themes that they put into it don't really affect the game that much, but it's still kind of fun whenever you're playing the Star Trek one and you have the trouble with tribbles when you're doing. You see all these pictures of Captain Kirk with tribbles all over him mm -hmm. and all these other little things that are going on. Very, very clever mechanisms in the game. It's something so totally unique. If you get a chance, give it a try. Don't shake it off as like, oh, that looks kind of dumb. Give it a try. It's actually quite fun. It's a good time. You know what? I'll be giving it a try. It's one that I passed on because I was like, ah, that looks kind of dumb. <laughs> I don't love, uh, <laughs> yes. love me some rolling rights, but you gave me a copy. You kept the Star Trek one. I've got the original. I haven't gotten this one to the table yet as I've had it for two days. But it, you know, when I'm looking at it, the four different tables that come with it, each with their own little theme. I like that. I'm looking back. There's a 2020 game and it's showing uh, most, uh, well, nominated for some Golden Geek Awards. I don't think it won any, but it got the most innovative. It was right. nominated for uh Nominated for Best Solo Game 2020 and there we go. Sign of the Times, Best Zoomable Game. <laughs> Dude, I don't know how BGG is going to look in 30 years. But people are going to oh. be Zoomable. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Scott, we have in Kentucky, we're going to be going to, is it in? No, we're going to Tennessee. Tennessee. Where the hell is Knoxville? We're going to Tennessee. At the end of April. And one of the things that we have to do is because there are – Ryan's going to go with us and Josh is going to go with us. We're going to have four members oh, wow. of the crew. Well, that's the plan anyway. So if four of us are going, it's like, look, we're going to need four tickets. They're like, that's great. But we want you guys to host Game of the Hour four times, one from each host. I was like, yes, Got no it. problem. Over three days, no problem at all. We have to come up with something like a simple game that people can like walk up and get in, get out, get in, get – like think uh, – th oh, I I not going to try and think of something off the top of my head. I suggested, you know what? Uh, how about Guild of Merchant Explorers? He's like, that one's a little bit lengthy. We're trying to think simpler, easier to pop Ooh. in, pop out. Do you think maybe Super Skill Pinball might fit the bill? This, I think, might fit the bill. If they have a way of projecting things up on a screen and being able to show how to play this to everyone at one time, I don't know how many people are going to be there for it. Well, so, it's a small convention. You know, when I say convention, I maybe the better way to put it is – very big meetup. I looked at last year's gotcha. numbers. I was like, okay, we're going down there. What, you know, what are we getting ourselves into? It appears to, now they have the convention center. They've got yeah, uh -oh. big space, and it looks like they had somewhere around three hundred people last year. They're hoping for uh, to double that or so this year. So oh, okay, yeah. Oh, then yes, this would be a definite one. Yeah, yeah. It, game of the hour, I gather, is like you might have a dozen people just walk up yeah. or maybe half the half the people that are there i don't know i don't know what to expect something <laughs> i'm brainstorming for ideas this looks like it could be a good one definitely this will be coming with us then hey king you remember we talked about factory 42 yeah you you seem to really like that one heck yeah i did and we even got a level up promo card in their kickstarter last year <laughs> I, I remember uh, a bit of level up for the show getting that promo from Dragon Dawn. And you know they did Grey Eminence. And Michelle as well. Uh, we've done a bit for them, actually. Well, now they're going to do a bit for our listeners. Did you manage to get another promo code? Oh, you bet, King. 10% off this one is using promo code LEVELUP on their website. 
Now, this is for anything on their site. Mm-hmm. White Hat, Grey Eminence, Factory 42, Beyond the Rift, everything. Even the giant Dungeon Crawler Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift. Everything is 10% off with promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. So, if I'm seeking a new adventure, where does I journey to use this mythical promo code spell? Two easy ways to do it. You can click on the logo for Dragon Dawn on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com or get on over to ddpgames.com and click shop. I, I Easily, I gotta tell you, one of my favorite things we're able to do with this show is find some ways to help adventurers save some money and score some loot. So get on with it, adventurers. ddpgames.com, click shop, promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. Level up. So, what's the next one you got a chance to play? Next one, we're going to stay with an aquatic theme. This was not by design, but the next one I have on the list is a game called Deep Dive. Deep Dive is a 2023 game. This is from Flat Out Games. Uh, It's from Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankovich. Stankovich? Stanka. Stanka work here anymore. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) The joke never dies. Deep Dive. It's pressure luck game. And what you're going to be, this is also with Jason. Jason and Jenny on our game day, they came out oh, okay. to learn this one. I was like, yep. Uh, if someone's willing, for the record, if someone's willing to teach me a game, I don't care what the game is, I'm willing to learn it. Deep Dive is a pressure luck game in which you're going to be guiding a waddle of penguins to get some food. And it, it's, it's an endless seafood buffet that is the deep sea. So the deep sea is going to be represented by five sets of tiles. Light blue for the shallow waters and progressively getting to like darker and darker as you go deeper. And all that they are is like, here's a big old mess of tiles face down so they're light blue. That's, your, that's the pool that creates the shallow waters. And then right next to it, you have another just scattering of tiles. Hey, that's a little bit deeper, etc. <laughs> so you have five stacks going deeper and deeper down. A turn's going to work like this. You've got a few penguins. They're like little penguin meeples. They're peoples. You got penguin meeples. (laughs) (laughs) They're wooden. Uh, It's actually a really nice little component. And you're going to take one of your penguins and you're going to place it on one of the tiles in the shallow end, for example. You're going to flip that tile up. And if it's food, go you. Your penguin can take that food and put it in front of you and your turn's over. Or you can press your luck and you take your penguin up off of that tile and you say, now we're going to go deeper. And you're going to flip a tile in the next one down. And if it's food, go you. You take that food, your turn's over. Or you can go deeper, right? So what's going to make you stop? What's going to make you stop is if you run into a shark, a predator, something that says, "Uh uh-uh, your penguin just, a done got ate. He's the dinner. So you're going to leave your penguin meeple sitting on that tile and sitting in that part of the uh, of the ocean, right? What that means is the relevance there is on your next turn, when you pick up your second penguin meeple, you don't have to start in the shallow end. You may start where your last penguin was. So it's like you can continue to press your luck, but those first two swings have already been swung. You don't have to take your chances in the shallow and the pretty shallow area. You can start right in that third pool of tiles where your last one was. The goal of the game is to get the most points from food that you're scooping up as you pull these penguins off the board. As you go deeper into the ocean, obviously the points are going to be a little bit higher. Plus they intermingle some need to find sets. Food comes in three different colors, green, pink, and I think blue, just like in real life. And when you collect, say, uh, let's suppose that I get a shrimp and crab and the shrimp is green and the crab is blue. Well, I, man, if I can find a pink something or other, oh, a pink crab. Oh, it's only worth two points, but I'll take it. And here's why. 
the tiles that you collect are only worth half points unless okay. you have a set of three. So if you oh. have three uh, three different colors, not three of the same kind, but uh, a pink, a green, and a blue, you just put them next to each other. It doesn't matter what they are. That is a set of three. And then if you get another blue and another blue and another green, well, you need to find another pink. I think, well, the colors don't matter. You get where I'm going with that. Yes. You have some differentiation in how you're going to weigh the points based on whether or not it is a needed color to complete another set. That makes sense? Yes. You also have tiles that are going to be little rocks. like you. It's like a pebble. And you can say, you know what? I'm just going to stop there and I'm going to take the pebble. Well, what does that do? The penguin on your next turn, whenever you are going to dive, you, at any point you can take that pebble and be like, you know what? My penguin's going to swallow this. He's a little bit heavier now. He's not as buoyant. So you basically get to dive one deeper from the start on a turn. Mm, I don't know about that. I, I, <laughs> I got to call shenanigans on that one there because... <laughs> What is it? Isn't it that like their wedding ring? I have no idea. I should have done a little bit more research about penguins. It's funny. We even put up a doc. We're like, okay, we need to get better at like telling the story behind the game. And I was, oh, I can look up facts about penguins. Get really neat with this. Uh, I, I didn't. Well, I will give you the fact. Penguins do give their mates a pebble as their way of saying, hey, I want you to be my mate. I want to be your partner. That's their engagement ring, if you will, as a pebble. Oh, that's kind of cute. That's totes adorbs. So now we know an extra fact about penguins. That's deep dive. You've got tiles. You've got wooden penguin meeples that are barely needed. And it's a simple pressure luck game. It's going to be ideal for like introducing. We always say like, oh, it's an introductory game. It's just press your luck. It's kind of a one-trick pony. It's going to work well for families. It's going to work well if you want to like play with some younger gamers. They're going to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's a reasonable filler, although perhaps a little bit long for a filler. I want to say our four-player game took close to 40 minutes. You play until uh, one of the pools has all of its tiles flipped okay. up and revealed. Typically, that's the, the bottom pool. That That's the game. Yeah, and I can see that because I think Jason likes push-your-luck type of games. I agree. I think he does. And that gets into his wheelhouse with that. But still, that does feel like a fun one there. I, I do like the idea of the pebble to make you sink down faster and everything, even though it is against Penguin logic. But anyway, no, that, that does sound like a lot of fun there. That is kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's decent. I would put it in the we also played. Uh, what an episode ago? I said something like, "Oh, I forget which game we were talking about." It was like it was Dice Manor. It was Dice Manor. It was like, oh, yes. Like, it's not a game that you're going to be like, "Oh man!" Then we got to play Dice Manor. No, you're going to say like the games that you played, and you'd be like, "Oh, and we also played Dice Manor." Yeah, yeah. This fits that bill. Oh, we also played some Deep Dive. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's not going to be anybody's favorite game, but you'd be hard pressed to find someone that's like, "Well, that's just dumb." It's, it's, it's a cute little pressure. Well, that's cool. That's very cool. So that's deep dive. Deep dive. How about one more, Scott? All right. As I said earlier, I talked with Mitch and he sent us some games here from WizKids. And one of them was Fantasy Realms. Now, I played this once, oh, geez, probably three years ago. And then I was out at the game shop one day and I saw Star Trek Missions. And it's like based on Fantasy Realms. I'm like, I'm in. I had to pick it up. I did not like it. I did not like it one bit. Yeah, I remember you talking about this and saying it just did not scratch the itch. Didn't no, do anything it for did you. not. So whenever we got Fantasy Realms, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll give it a try. So we got it and we got it out. And I set it up to teach you real quick uh, the other day at uh, SCG. That's so right. So this is designed by 
Bruce Glasgow. And the whole idea behind this is you want to build up the best hand you possibly can in your hand. Uh, (laughs) So you have seven cards. (laughs) These cards are going to be different types of characters, different types of events, different types of areas, trinkets you can have. So all these different things you have in your hand that are fantasy related. So you could have... Swords, wizards, beasts, weather, floods. Exactly. Now, on each of these cards, you're going to have extra things written on the bottom. There's not a lot of writing on them, but the writing on them can be very tricky. So I'm looking one here. There's a building. It's a bell tower. It's Mm -hmm. eight points. So, hey, I got eight points with this card. I'm eight points closer to victory. Well, down the bottom, you get a bonus 15 points with any wizard or undead creature card that you have. Makes sense. So they want to be then, in a bell tower. You're looking through your cards. I don't have anything like that. So what you can do is you can draw a card and discard a card. And then you get one. Oh, look, I got a wizard now to go along with that bell tower. Bell tower. That's perfect. But then it's plus 10 if three different cards in the same suit. Well, Ooh. oh, now then that building isn't all that great. I need to go find the different suits in the wizards now. Now you're discarding the bell tower, but then you never get that wizard. So you're making all sorts of plans of how to make the best engine, if you will, in your cards to hold in your hand. So it really gets that point where your mind is working overtime, trying to think what is going to work best with this. Like, oh, here's one here that's worth 13 points, but it doesn't match with anything else on my hand. So I'm not going to get any bonuses. Do I want to keep it just so I know I have 13 points? Or do I want to take a chance dumping that and getting something I'll work with other ones? You have so many decisions to be made and you only have right around 10 turns. You have, once there are 10 discards laying out in front of you and your opponents, game is over. You start tallying everything up. And the interesting thing with this is whenever you're tallying up your points, you go through each card and add up each card and then add up the whole total because there are so many different variables going on with this. Here's uh, a queen. You get bonus plus five for each army, or if you have a king, you get plus 20 for each army. So there's all these different things and a crazy one. Here, Here we go with one. You may duplicate the name and suit of any one army, building, land, weather, flood, or flame. So you've got all these extra things you can play with, but do you push your luck and try and get that card in your hand that's going to work? Or do you just stick with what you have knowing you have a certain number of points? Right, right. This updated the whole idea of what I had from Star Trek missions. Going into this, I was really kind of, eh, I, I don't know if I really want to play this. But as we played it, I was just getting hooked on the whole mechanics of seeing what can I get in my hand? How can I make it work out the best? And I so thoroughly enjoyed placing the cards here and thinking, all right, I'm just going to put that one over there and forget about it because that one's going to be great. And then you get the other cards and then it's like, oh crap, I need this. So many decisions to be made, but it is so enjoyable to play. That's fantasy realms. Yeah, this one's easy to understand. You've got to, your cards have a point value in the top left, and then yeah. they usually have some kind of a modifier. Uh, here's how it gets a bonus. So, like the magic wand, it's worth one point. And then it says, 
you get plus 25 points if you have a wizard. Yep. So you know that throughout the course of the game, as you're picking up cards and drawing new and placing, you're going to be trying to find a wizard, like you said. And then you draw something like the world tree. It's an artifact and it's plus 70 if every non-blanked card is a different suit. And it's like, oh, wait, what if I go for different suits? <laughs> it's every time you see a new card, be it a draw off the top of the deck or an opponent's discard to the middle that you can then pick up, it changes how, you, uh, how you're evaluating things. Mm -hmm. I had this card uh, when we were playing the other day. It was like the Great Flood. And the penalty oh, on yes. it, is worth, it is worth 32 points, but it's going to blank any armies, buildings, and lands that you have, right? Except for mountains and flames, uh, it, it, except for lightning. Floods apparently get rid of lightning. Anyway, the point <laughs> is, I'm looking at this great flood and I was like, well, I don't have any armies, buildings, or lands. So that's great. It works with everything else that I have. Oh, and my lightning, I have that and it doesn't get blanked either. The lightning wants me to have the rainstorm. So I'm like, man, if I can find the rainstorm, I can win this game. So I draw a card and basically it changes what I want to have. It's mm -hmm. like, by the way, if you have beasts, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, neat, neat game. So you basically play, like you said, until there's 10 cards in the middle. And then you just take the, the cards you have in your hand, set them on the table and you start adding up the math. Here's what I got. Scratch the ones that didn't get their bonus. Some of them, uh, if they have a penalty, like my Great Flood, if I had any armies, buildings, or lands, I could basically get rid of them because I, I don't have them now. The Great Flood wiped them out. I was kind of impressed with this game's, we'll say, thematic tie-ins. Mm -hmm. Like I drew a dungeon and it wanted me to have undead. I was like, well, that's cool. And then the Magic Wand wants you to have wizards. And then the Flood has all these different all these different cards that it interacts with that are like nature themed. Then you've got the air elemental and the flame elemental. I was like, this is only a deck of like a hundred or 150 cards. 95 cards. Okay. There's 95 cards and they worked an awful lot of content into them. The game plays in what? 10 minutes? Easily 10 minutes you can play that. Yes. Yeah. If, uh, if you're passing that one on, I'll take it. I don't know. I think this one <laughs> might be sticking around for quite some time here. Well, thank you again to uh, to Mitch and the team at WizKids. i tell you what, we've had a fantastic partnership with a lot of publishers. Oh, yes. And WizKids, uh, no different. They've been very kind to us. Very much so. So what's the surprise he has for us today? The surprise today is we've got a prime mover. Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated is up two spots to number 22. Look Woo. at that, a legacy. These legacy games, you know, with the pandemics, all three of them in the top 100. Clank is up there. I think Ticket to Ride is probably destined oh, to yes. hit the top 100. We're, we're four games in so far. How you how you liking Ticket to Ride Legacy? Oh, I, hey, hey, we just unlocked the Midwest and we're making our own cities now. Oh, <laughs> good stuff. Let me ask you this, uh, just to get a, a little peek behind the curtain. Eventually, the plan is we're going to have uh, – so Lena is one of our new contributors, mm -hmm. and she's actually playing Ticket to Ride Legacy with us. So eventually, when we do our Ticket to Ride Legacy review, we'll have Lena on for that episode. Yes. That'll be the introduce the adventures to Lena. Who is this girl? I got to ask you, though, at this point in the campaign, is your mind blown? Because I know that this is the first Legacy game that you've played. Are you wowed by – some of the things that are happening and the way that they're tinkering with it. Like you have to admit it is different from any other board game yes. or campaign game that you've played, huh? Yeah, it is. I'm not wowed. Okay. okay. I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm not wowed, but I'm having an absolute blast playing it. So it's not like it's turning the whole gaming in my whole gaming experience on its ear. It's just opening up a new way of playing it. And I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying what we're doing so far with that. Lots okay. of fun. Well, we're 
going to pass the halfway point today in our campaign. And I'll be interested to see if there is a point where it's like, oh, wait, they just blew me away. Oh, Because hey. so far, each legacy game that I've played has had that holy crap moment. Okay. I, I look forward to it. And that is Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated, <laughs> up two spots at number 22. Falling Stars, we had to put this one in here. Uh, speaking of Legacies, Pandemic Legacy Season 0. For the last two years, we've been going, it's up again, it's up again. Well, oh, yeah. it's down Ooh. three spots to number 54. New Highest Peaks, these games are higher than they've ever been. Great Western Trail 2nd Edition is at number 29. Climbing mm. fast. Frost Haven's up to 41. Kanban EV at 51. Heat Pedal to the Metal is at 53. Cthulhu Death May Die at 69. And... Obsession up to number 74. One thing I got to say is I'm glad Heat is at 53. Yeah. I like the game. I don't think it's the greatest game like a lot of people are really touting it being. So I'm glad that it didn't just jump right up to being in the top 10 with everyone going on saying, wow, this is a 10, this is a 10, this is a 10. I'm glad that it's taking its time and moving up slowly. I would say Heat was the hottest game since, no pun intended, since Ark Nova. Well, and what was the other one? Uh, Wingspan. Oh, I mean, well, yeah, Wingspan jumped up like crazy, but yeah. Ark Nova came out, what, two and a half years ago? Right, yeah. And it shot up instantly. Right, he right. He did the same thing. Like, uh, whew, impressive. Yep. Oh, yeah, Happy birthdays! So. We got PAX Premier, three years in the top 100. Anachrony, five years. A Feast for Odin, seven years. Mechs versus Minions, seven years. Blood Rage, eight years, and Dominant Species, 13 years. Woo! Yeah, we keep talking about PAX Premier. I think it's on BGA now. It is. So it, it event, everything's eventual. We everything's have no eventual. excuses now. <laughs> oh, oh my, God. my excuse right now is that Ryan's like, yeah, I don't feel like learning that one. I'm not teaching you. <laughs> Scott, we've got an interesting review game today. It's Arborea. Arborea is one that I kickstarted some year and a half ago, and it actually, the turnaround was nice and quick. I'll do the walkthrough. Please, please do. Designed by Danny Garcia and published in 2023 by Alley Cat Games, Arborea is a worker placement Euro game that incorporates the element of time via pilgrimage tracks. Players assume the role of patron spirits, guiding their villagers on these pilgrimages to generate resources, grow the landscape of Arborea, and entice animals to their ecosystems, all of which score regeneration points. And at the end of the game, the player with the most points is the winner. Okay, so lots to go over on this one. So this walkthrough is going to be kind of like the Cliff's Notes version. To start, you've got this glorious mess of a main board with these four like path tracks for the pilgrimages, two on each side of the board. Notably, when workers are placed on these tracks, over time they're going to shift down the track, almost like a conveyor belt. When you activate a worker, you're going to remove it from the track that it's on and carry out the actions above or below it. Obviously, more powerful actions if the worker's further down the track. Now, those tracks, they're kind of like the hook here. They're the primary mechanism of the game. To understand them a little bit better, let's go over a player turn, which consists of four steps. Step one, that's where you can add a worker to any one of those four conveyor belts, the tracks. Or you can activate one of those tracks. You've got a villager on moving everything on the track further down the line. Step two, that's where you get to activate your villagers. Well, up to two of them. You pick a villager that's on a track and there's these pathways above it and below it. 
and you pick which way your villager is going to go. Just follow along the pathway according to the position that your villager is on on that main pilgrimage track and collect the resources and take the actions for the icons that it crosses along the path above or below, which ultimately is going to end on a symbol that's going to send that worker back to your player board. Now, we try and give a gist of a game, so I'm just going to briefly point out what some of these icons and actions include. Many of the symbols are going to generate resources and invite animals, each to a shared area of the main board. Yes, that's right. You get a little bonus for unlocking them, but these are shared and available for all players, and the first to use them gets them. You've got a means of unlocking more workers, drawing ecosystem cards, and gifting sages as well. Ecosystem cards are simply a card with a cost in resources that when you pay for them, you get a little reward, and then you get to flip them upside down where you're going to find a 2x3 grid depicting various terrain types. You'll actually be placing these terrain next to each other to the side of your personal player board, and that's where you're going to put the animal meeples that you're inviting into your ecosystem, which will score you points at the end of the game. Gifting the sages? Well, put simply, that's a longer-term strategy that's going to allow you to place a cube next to one of the sage images associated with each of the eight pathways next to the four tracks, which give you rewards in the future as you use that path again and again. Now, step three of the turn, that's where you actually pay for and get to play those ecosystem cards that we discussed. And step four, and step four is simply where you add critters that you've accumulated to your ecosystem. Play is going to continue until a set number of animal meeples have been unlocked, at which point one more round is played, and as scores are tallied, the high score wins the game. Now, as always, there's plenty more... Now, as always, there's plenty more than we go over in a walkthrough, and in the case of Arborea, that includes the spirit track, the endgame scoring provided by season tiles, the potential points that you're going to score off of generating resources, and so much more. But nevertheless, I hope this walkthrough gives you a general sense of how Arborea is going to play out when it hits your table. How did I... How did Scott and I fare in creating a nice, balanced ecosystem? Let's find out in the 8-bit breakdown of... Arborea! Welcome to the world of Arborea. You are a patron spirit, guiding your villagers to heal and grow the landscape around them by sending them on pilgrimages and building your personal ecosystem. Thank you, Patrick, for that walkthrough of Arborea. Here on the Level Up Board Game Podcast, we like to break things down in our 8-bit breakdown, and we're going to start that off with theme and components. Did I Art do that and one? components. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Scott, it's only episode 116. I know, I know. I Come on! Here. <laughs> Art and components. Art and components. Let me tell you what. The art is glorious on this. It is mm-hmm. so colorful, so bright, so many things to do. And that's where you run into the problem because it's so bright, so colorful, and so many things to do. It took me probably half the game to get comfortable with where I was going on the tracks and what decisions I can make, where I could go for things. That was a problem for me to, to start off with. It was just so busy with all the stuff and everything board. on there. But once you got it down, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed whenever you looked at it and things clicked on your head and you're like, ah, that's where I want to go. And it was just like some of the older video games that I would play, you would see like a chest that has a little glowing thing around it. And you know, I need to go there. 
you look at this and you notice that one path you need to go on and it's glowing. It's like, that's the way I want to go. Everything mm -hmm. else is dark except for that one path and you have it in your mind. That's where I need to go. So that was very good. Components, the little creatures you have were some of the craziest named creatures I think I've ever <laughs> heard of before. Antipus or, no, no, no. There were animals mixed with an ant vine or something like that. It was... Like animals mixed with different flowers or something. It was just really crazy stuff. So that was fun. It's just, it's kind of a creepy aesthetic looking at these things, but a still. A little bit. But still, it's adorable. I mean, I'm looking at this beetle with vines coming out of its back end, but it's still kind of adorable. It, it, it's like the idea <laughs> of a Pokemon that didn't really catch on. So they figured, let's put that, it in You know here. what? That's a great way of putting it. They're uh, the uh, island of misfit Pokemon. There's a furry worm with antlers. Um, <laughs> what else was it? there? This looks like a depressed fig with a leaf on its head. You've got all sorts of weird little things here, but it works in this for some reason. They um, all get their own screen printed meeples yes. too. So you get like a little silhouette of the artwork on a custom, like a laser cut meeple, which was a nice touch. You got a pastel color palette to the game, which mm -hmm. I think kind of takes away from the fact that some of these critters are like, ah, they're, they're practically monsters. You know, yeah. oh, I'm going to recruit this monster. No, they're kind of like the fauna returning to the area in keeping with the theme. They're, the art, honestly, it's one of the reasons that I backed the game. You look at the art on the cover of that box, and it's it's kind of like a uh, – kind of reminds me of Root a little bit. Okay. Uh, I yeah, like the yeah, I can look see of that. It. It's very appealing. But once the board is set up, aside from the fact that it is a glorious mess, tracks all over the place, color, <laughs> vomit, it's wonderful – there's not a whole lot of art once you're sitting down at the table and playing the game. You're not going to be like, wow, look at look at what they did on this card. You mm -hmm. know, it's not a card game, so you're limited to the board. All in all, no points lost for components, but I don't know that anyone's going to be blown away by it. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, number two, we go into theme and immersion. I didn't really get immersed but it kind of goes back to the first point where I was just so overwhelmed by the artwork and the decisions to be made. Your brain's trying to figure out how to play the game, sure. Yes, yes. So it's one of those games where I think multiple plays, you're really going to get immersed into it as to what the most optimal moves are going to be. Uh, are you going to get thematically immersed? You, okay, it says, once in a millennia, Arborea begins anew. And as a guiding spirit, you'll oversee the growth of this realm into a new and prosperous ecosystem. No, I don't feel it. Uh, there you go. I was thinking the same thing. Th thematically, the tie-in works. All of yes. the mechanisms kind of contribute towards that. But boy, it's hard to ever say... Okay, look, I've been learning role player adventures for us. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the theme is through the roof, right? <laughs> it's a theme forward game. Some games naturally lend themselves to that. Oh, they have sure. Reading, yeah. They have story. Some of them, there's implied theme. This is a very mechanism forward game, isn't it? Oh, very much so in that you get tied up into what you need to do. And the story, unfortunately, takes a back seat to it. I think it's one that once you play it, like I said, a few times, then you can kind of see it. You're going to get into knowing what the animals' names are and going to have that fun with my ivy butt beetle is going to take <laughs> on your furry antlered snail. And I think the theme is going to, and the immersion is going to grow over time playing this. 
I would be interested in going back and playing to get better at because there's so many mechanisms, which we'll get into later on. What were your thoughts? Well, we have a knack for like when we're playing a game like, oh, it's not, it's not give me a green one. That's, uh, that's giving me mithril. And it's not, uh, I, I need another coin. No, it's a ducat in this game. You know, call the components what they are. Those critters, <laughs> give me the pink one. Give me the red one. We were never using the names. It, it, it's just not that type of game. The one area that I thought, okay, I can kind of see where we're starting to build out this world is as we're introducing critters and they're going on to the main board. It's like, oh, hey, there's there's they're returning to the land. Mm-hmm. And then we're drawing those cards, the ecosystem cards mm-hmm. with the little grid of land territories. There's not much to look at. They, they're basically colors with a little bit of texture to them. But as you're placing those in your personal tableau and overlapping, then you're inviting critters and you're putting them onto your cards in your tableau. It's like, oh, look, I have a land here and there's seven cards with all these different colorful areas. And I've got some guys that are that are populating the area. That's the one area where I'm like, okay, I I get it. It feels thematic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just an awful lot going on in this one for me to feel like, okay, yeah, it it all connects. Uh, They have us gifting the sages. There's a shared resource track. There's three different types of workers and none of it ever felt particularly bound to the theme uh, with the exception of that card placement placement for me. That's where it felt like, okay, we're actually recreating Arborea here. Lots of stuff going on. That's going to tie a little bit into bit number three, which is the complexity. And I'm going to say this is definitely on the heavier side of a medium weight game. I don't think I would classify it as a heavyweight. But if we're going to put it in the medium category, it is getting pretty close to the line. Well, it's rated a 3.59 out of 5 on BGG. So, yes, that gets up there. Yeah, yeah. And to BGG, like, oh, it goes up to five. No game has a five. Spoiler alert. The highest that any of them get to is typically around 4.4. Right. So that should give you an idea that it is it is awfully close. Huh? Oh, yeah, very much so. And I think it's not one of those things that ties in with the learning aspect of it, which we'll get into here shortly, but it gets into the amount of decisions you have to make. It's not like one of those things where you have three tracks you can go on. You have all these different tracks, but then each one of those tracks breaks off into a different pathway. So you have on the top and on the bottom. I know. So you have all these different paths to follow and all these different decisions to take. And how long are you going to keep your creatures out there as they move along? There is just a lot of complex decisions to be made, Mm -hmm. but the decisions aren't complex, if that makes sense. You know what? I think it makes sense in that. It's easy to understand what each icon does. After you've learned, you know, that first, the, like a learning game, this one takes a learning game. Cool. You're going to start to understand what each icon does. And okay, if I get on this path, I know what I'm going to get. Where I think the complexity lies is that there are so many different things, so many icons that there's a challenge in connecting the dots to determine what's going to result in points. Mm-hmm. What should I be doing? I see that I've got all these odds, so many things that I can do that it makes it difficult to decide, well, what should I do? Right. You know, what's, yeah. what's the goal here? Am I trying to invite critters? Am I trying to make resources? Because you can make a boatload of resources and get a boatload of points just from creating resources into the shared pool. There's that track at the very bottom of the board for the four end game targets, and you can move up those tracks. I'm guessing somewhere it ties into that. What you know? What are those four end game targets? But you know what? I think you can win the game without moving up any of those. You get a multiplier for moving up each of those tracks. So if one of the targets is 
have the pink critter. And yep. you bump up that three times, you're going to get, to say, three points for each pink critter that you have. Well, that gives me some direction, but I could also just generate a whole bunch of mushrooms and <laughs> gift to this sage. And that's going to give me more points. Like, I'll, I'll blow you out of the water doing that. It's hard to connect the dots, I yeah. think, is where the complexity lies. Well, and I think that lies right into going into bit number four, the rule book and learning curve. Now, you took the rule book, you took the brunt of everything here to learn that and teach it to us. And mm -hmm. the learning curve, I think it's not so much as a learning curve as it is an experience curve where okay. you can learn it rather quickly as to, in, like you said, just put the pink one here, put the green one here, do things like that easily. The real curve comes into the experience that you get from playing this game over and over. Then you start seeing those paths that are optimal for you to take and what are going to be the best ideas for you to make this game a positive experience for you and also for your score. We'll call that a skill curve, getting better at the game. That's a good way of putting it there. Yes. Uh, I was looking more at like experience points. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, yeah. Skill curve is a perfect way of putting it. It's not difficult, so to say, to learn. But once you learn it, then the decisions you have to make, that's whenever it really gets a little bit difficult. So easy entrance, deep decisions to make. What did you think about the rule book? I thought the rule book, uh, it's a great rule book. Honestly, I learned the game oh, straight out of the book, barely had to watch any videos, pictures, examples, nice layout for setup. Everything's clearly labeled, good reference for all the symbols. And make no mistake, there are a lot of symbols. I'm surprised that you found the learning curve so light. I thought the learning curve was really high on account of all the symbols and all the different like... Okay, I could go down this track. Now, three different types of workers, one of which if it stays on a track and you don't go down a path, the track will bump twice instead of mm -hmm. once. So I, I, want to, I want to paint the picture of these tracks for the adventurers. You've got four different tracks on the board. Each one has a spot where you can place a worker. It's like the third spot in. And then at the end of the turn, the end of your turn, let's say you're the green player. Any track that has a green meeple on it is going to slide inward towards the, the center of the board. So it is 11 squares, and you have two tiles that are four squares each, and they're sitting on the far left. If you still have a guy, you'll slide the two tiles to the right one. And why are there two tiles? Because eventually you're going to hit the end of the track. At that point, the farthest to the right tile of four spaces will bump to the left, back to the beginning of the track. So in that way, the longer you leave a, a, a meeple on a track, the longer it's going to slide towards the center of the table. And in turn, you're going to have more powerful options. So let's suppose that you're on the sixth spot of one of the tracks. You can go up or down onto one of the paths and collect all of the icons shown. If you wait until you're at the eighth or ninth spot, you can move up or down, and you'll, you'll collect a lot more. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to gain. If you wait even further, there's even more to gain. But then you're weighing the cost of the amount of time that you're not using that meeple versus the rewards that you're getting when you use it. I think the learning curve is actually, to me, it was, it was far deeper. I think it takes an entire game to learn it just because, first of all, you've got to understand how those tracks work. You've got to understand all the symbols for every one of those paths that your guy goes down. There are three different types of guys. One, you'll always have access to. One is just a generic guy. And then the third one is if he's on a track, it bumps twice instead of once. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a nuanced rule that you've got to remember. When you invite critters, they go to the board. And then whenever you recruit them, they go to your personal board. 
And then you have to put them into your ecosystem. And if you don't, they go into the pen. And if they're still in the pen at the end of the game, you're going to lose three people. Like, oh, uh, shared resources. You create a resource, you slide up the first. Remember that that piece, the resource tracker is a little square that's cut in half. Mm -hmm. You slide up the top piece to show that there are resources. Then you slide up the bottom piece to show that you've gained that many points. There's a lot happening in the game. And to me, I thought the the learning curve was a lot steeper. Well, I, I, I think- I it, thought it was kind of hard to learn. I think it might be something where, uh, like a difference in way we're explaining it. I think once I got those down, like maybe around the third, third and a half, fourth turn or something like that, I got the idea. Mm-hmm. I could say, tell who I'm trying to think, was Lena playing it with us? Yeah, Lena and Tom. Yeah. So I would say, oh, you want to do this. You want to do this. You want to move that there. I kind of got the idea of that, knowing exactly what was the most beneficial thing to do that's different. So I think I understood the basic ideas of what would happen each turn. So that's what uh, I was looking at the learning curve as being a little bit easier to figure out where things need to go each part of the turn, but not really optimizing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's perfectly fair also that we had different experiences with the learning curve. This was a hard game for me and I came in last. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It might just be that things click. You know, sometimes you sit down in a game and it's like, you barely have to teach me. I think I know what I'm doing here. You know, like they're they're a third of the way through the rules teach and you're like, I got it. Let's go. I know what I'm doing now. Um, Whereas for someone else in the case of Arborea, for me, it was like, wait, can you explain that again? But that brings us to bit number five, the meat of the game. This one's this one's a bit tricky, as I think it can be found in a bunch of oh, places, yeah. as the game is a bit of a point salad. Points for getting resources to the table to share. Points for unlocking critters, placing critters, gifting sages. It's all important, but it's all dependent on managing the workers on the main board and those sliding tracks upon which they're placed. I think the mechanism, what's the hook of the game? It's those sliding tracks. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Arborea what it is. It's a little tie into like sulking where you have this, I place a worker oh, yes. and then I have a delayed gratification. And the longer I wait, the the more I get back. That's the hook here. That's If you're going to like this game, it's because you like that. Obviously, you want to wait and get as much as possible. And each track has different things that are beneficial. So I think if you play a good game, placing onto those tracks and using them at ideal times, that's where you're getting into the meat of Arborea. What do you think for the meat? Where's where's the game? Happen? Okay, now here's where I go a little bit weird. My idea is this is a Foga de Chao of games. <laughs> What's Foga de Chao? Explain it to adventurers that don't understand <laughs> the Brazilian steakhouse. Foga de Chao is a Brazilian steakhouse where you have meats that come out constantly. You have a little coaster with a red light or a green light on it. So if you put the red light up, they don't come and bother you. You put the green light out, man, you get that meat coming out constantly. You sit down, you have that brisket that comes out. Man, that's perfect. Those are going to be those tracks that move. And that's that's great. Flip it over to red. And you really get into that and you enjoy that. And then you flip it over mm-hmm. to green. Oh, here comes this pork. That's amazing. That's going to be the gifting to the sages. And it's like, oh, That's the new one that we really want to focus on. And then you flip it over to red. You really get to the sages part. Then you flip it over to green. Oh, here comes another stakeout. Oh, well, this is going to be the whole idea of putting the critters on your environment. So each, there's so many different things to choose from. It's hard to narrow it down, like you said, as to what is really the main meat of the game. Because there are so many different directions you can go with this. 
that it just makes it an interesting experience as you play it. When we revisit Arborea, I'd be interested in playing a game and saying, I'm going to focus heavily on gifting the sages, even if it's at the expense of ever yeah. creating a resource. And then I'm going to play again. And I'm going to say, I'm going to be the resource guy. I'm going to, because there's, there's big points in creating some of those. And it's like, you know what? I'm just going to score my points by create. I feel like there are, we'll say eight different things that you can prioritize mm-hmm. and you just can't do them all. No. So you've got to kind of pick a couple to hammer home and a couple to ignore. I think that might be the meat of the game is is playing to the strengths, playing to what you're trying to do. And that probably ties into what the end game goals are. Like if we were on our 40th play, then we might have the experience level to say, okay, I see what the end game goals are. And this one gives me a lot for getting resources and having them left over at the end of the game. So I'm going to be the resource guy. I'm going to score a lot of points that way. And I'm going to try and just keep churning workers. That first track in the top left where you could like, oh, you get to unlock uh, a white – one of the veterans. Mm-hmm. And you get an elder whenever you use this track. I'm just going to keep doing that to make workers. And I'm going to scatter them on the other tracks to make resources. Sages be damned. Creatures be damned. You know, if they happen, I'll get one or two. But that's not my focus. Then another game, it might give you bonus points for having the uh, the antler worm. Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to make antler worms, and they need these two resources. That puts me on these two tracks. To heck with the sages. I'm yeah. not doing that, and I won't need extra workers. I think maybe that's where the meat of the game is, is identifying, based on the four endgame targets, what you should prioritize, and then just just going whole hog on those those priorities. Yeah. And hey, if you do that, let me know, because I would definitely love to revisit this game again. Replayability and variability is bit number six. I'll uh, I'll go down the list. I feel like I have a little bit more familiarity, so I'll go over what some of the variables are. That being, you have some uh, those endgame scoring tiles, which is mm-hmm. a big one. They might adjust how you prioritize what you can do in the game. The sages, they have static bonuses printed on the board. So, like, if you're gifting to this sage, if you have filled in the first slot, you will always get one mushroom resource. If you filled in the first and second slot, you will get a mushroom resource and you'll get to unlock one extra worker. And when I say unlock workers, that's always good in a game. But in this game, you unlock them. And once they're used, they go back to your board, back to the locked position. Mm-hmm. That's that's important. Anywho, the point being, those sages with their static benefits, they have overlays that you can put over that. So you can and you can randomize them and switch up who gets what. So you can change what sages are going to offer and which ones offer what. The reward for being the first to unlock a critter, there's a little tile that sits up there that's interchangeable. Uh, Of course, the ecosystem cards that you're going to draw, that's going to vary as well. Uh, Honestly, there's a lot of small variables, and I don't know that any of them are going to change the direction of a play enough to make one game feel totally different from the next. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think you're going to be coming back to a familiar game each time in spite of the variables. I do have a slight issue, though, in that the correlation from the actions that I take to the scoring that I get for them because there's so many steps, because there's so much happening in the game, sometimes that can become a little blurry, a little convoluted. Sure. So much so that I don't care what the scoring tiles say. I'm going to take what seems like the most efficient play each turn and get the most stuff that I can. Scoring tile be damned. Because of the flow chart of options on any given turn and the eventual benefits taking long enough to gain, that it ends up being, I think, a very tactical game. What's good in the moment as opposed to yeah. what's good long term. 
And I'm going to identify that as a downside for me, but also note, I came in last. I might just not be good <laughs> at that. Okay, I'm placing here and thinking three term, three turns ahead. What do you think, Scott, for replayability and variable? It sounds like one that you want to get back to. Yeah, oh, I, I definitely do. And I do agree with the whole idea of the variability. It's there, but it's not going to be to the point of feeling like you're playing a completely different game. It's maybe adding a little extra oregano to the sauce this time. Or, a little seasoning, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of seasoning here and there that to, to adjust it a little bit to give you a different flavor of a game that you're going to be playing each turn, uh, each time, I'm sorry. The replayability definitely is there because once you're done, you have so many decisions. Your mind is going at such a rate whenever you're finished with that game. You almost want to say, let's set this up and play it again while it's still fresh in my memory to replay this and see if I could do this a little bit differently if I did this instead. In, in Sometimes the- we finish a game and we think, what would I do differently? Oh, and yeah. it makes you really want to dive back in. Exactly. And there was so much going into learning it, it what's going to be the optimal choices. You want to do it while it's still fresh in your mind. Right, right. But that's my thoughts on replayability and variability. That's That's what I think of this. Well, I started to tap into downsides uh, for me being that it is so much going on. And that's the first thing that I wrote down. There's a lot going on, almost too much. Like I feel like there's one too many mechanisms, but I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm not going to spend too much on downsides because this is a good little game. If I had to pick one downside, we had a four-player game and I want to say it took us like two hours, Mm -hmm. two and a half, which for me, that last 20% of the game, it was like, okay, the excitement's been done here. The big turns were done. Uh, I suppose for me, it slightly overstated its welcome at four players. And believe it or not, this thing plays up to five, which I will (laughs) never, never do that. Uh, I probably won't do four again. I think three's the sweet spot for this game. So maybe a downside is if you're seeing four, uh, it plays up to four or five on the box. Yeah, it might be a little yeah. disenchanted with how it plays. I, I think it plays best at three. What do you think? Uh, any downsides, Scott? Downsides, I think, came from the initial look at the game. You look at it and you are just like, what the hell did I just sign up for? Because there's so <laughs> game board much going on to that board. All the artwork, all the choices, all the places to put things. It does overwhelm you. And I think that's a big thing that's going to lead into my final bit. But I think that's why I'm going to leave it right there with the downsides is just so much with the artwork overwhelms you. Bit of a glorious mess. Okay, well, why don't you take Was It Fun and bit number four, bringing it on home, bit number eight. Scott, let's get some final thoughts on Arborea. Well, this was fun. I did enjoy it. And something that I've really started to kind of gravitate to now that I'm thinking about it, playing all these games, doing this podcast, I really love my deep Euros. Playing Darwin's Journey. I love that game. Just the all the different decisions you had to make and all the different places you could go. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. This yeah, was speaking of games that you learn one third of and you go, yeah, I got it. Dude, that is just your game. <laughs> um I think I like I like it so much better than like territory control, think different things like that. I those I'm just not good at at all. The ones where I just need to sit there and look at those things and do the beautiful mind thing and see all the uh, calculations going through my mind, that is where I, that's my sweet spot. That's what I like to get to. And that's what Mm -hmm. this gave me with the whole idea of how long do I want to keep those workers going? What sages do I want to kind of focus on? 
I really, really enjoyed that. This was a fun experience. Who's it for? This is for your person that likes Euro games. No ifs, ands, or buts. Through and through. This is not going to be the person that's a casual player that's played Carcassonne. Oh, here, let's play this. <laughs> yeah, no, you've lost the friend. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, someone who's played a lot of games and they want something to push their skills and really push them to make a lot of decisions. This is a great game for that. Once again, if they could have toned down the art a little, it's kind of like the hunger. If they could have toned down the gloss on that board a little bit, it would have been better. This one here, they toned down the art just a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit. I think this would have shined so much more. But uh, yeah, this is definitely for your Euro gamer friends. Top notch, two thumbs up for that. Overall, I like what's going on in this game. I like the pacing. I like the moving tracks uh, that the the workers are going to be activated from. I think it's going to reward repeat plays as we become more familiar with the many, many icons and as it becomes easier to strategically play the game. Now, was it fun? That's, That's what we're looking for here. For me, it was fun. It was not a blast. Mm. It is better than your average game, no doubt. It has some big payoff turns where you get to trigger two workers at the end of their tracks and you get to take these amazing mega turns, making resources, ton of rewards, inviting critters, dropping cards in your ecosystem. It has very satisfying moments. You know, I, I have to I have to ask myself, if I was to go back in time and say, Pat, would you, knowing how the game plays now, I was originally sucked in because of the artwork. <laughs> I was like, this looks cool. Would I click the back button knowing how it plays? Mm. I I don't know. Oh. Um, I don't know that, that I would be one to back it, which is weird to say because I, I'm delighted in playing it. I, I, I don't want to poo-poo the game, but I don't know that it's a Patrick type of game. It, maybe it's a Scott. Scott, you want to buy it? Oh, hey. I'll I sell it to you. Board, yeah. <laughs> It's a fun game uh, if it does, in fact, have a little bit of downtime while other people are having their mega turns. Also, just got to take a moment and point out the retail version is like 50 bucks. Kickstarter exclusive version, I think, is 75 And that feels right. It's not a steal of a deal. But in terms of value, you get a lot of game in the box and a lot of content for that price. Who's it going to be for? You said it. Uh, Euro through and through. Uh, it's got some similarities to Sulking where you have the delayed worker actions that the longer you wait, the more you're going to get. I think... I think board game companies know that if we put in critters, right, like woodland critters of yeah. some sort, that has an appeal. That gets that gets more – that it reaches a wider swath of gamers. It has appeal to a wider variety of people than World War II yes, or yeah. generic fantasy or dressmaking or whatever it is. <laughs> woodland critters are going to appeal to a lot of people and I think – that if you're going into Arborea thinking, oh, it's a woodland critter game. It's going to be like Everdell where I have these cute things happen. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. It is not. It is a It's a numbers game. It's a, I mean, it is trying to think two turns ahead game. It's a thinker. Don't think you're getting into this cute little romp because you're not. And if that sounds appealing, I think you're really going to like Arborea. Emperor Queen Shi Hong has passed away. No, 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 (laughs) no. We went over this in the side quest last week. 
No. <laughs> Sorry. We're we're allowed to do Russian accents and British accents. That is it. <laughs> oh, Beyond okay. that, it's appropriating. Okay. <clears throat> Emperor Qin Shi Huang has passed away. To protect him in the afterlife, a great army in the form of statues of faithful warriors must be assembled to stand guard in the Emperor's tomb. You will be among those tasked with building this magnificent army. Well, Scott, it's been a year since we had the chance to play and review Terracotta Army from Board and Dice. This one comes from one of my favorite designers, Adam Kwapinski, famous, of course, for Nemesis, one of your mm. all-time favorites. <laughs> Terracotta Army, one year later. So this is kind of weird. We just did our top 10 of Season 3, and this is one of the first ones in Season 3. And notably, in our last full episode, I said, this made my top 10. I really enjoy Terracotta Army. I like that wheel where you have to place your worker on the outside and then you get the inside benefit, mm -hmm. then the middle ring, and then the outer ring. I get to see how you get to trigger. Like, okay, if I go here, I can get some coin and then I can trade the coin to hire this worker and the worker's going to give me this benefit, which is the clay that I need for the outside action that'll let me build a soldier. Ooh, but where do I put the soldier into the terracotta army? There's a lot happening in this game, isn't there? There truly is. And I bought this. I think I bought this... Around the same time you got it, it was yeah, one of those funny so. things there where we, we passed each other at SCG and we both picked up the same game. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not brought that back to the table and I want to. I'm definitely going to put this on my list of things over Christmas to get this game out and play it again because it does look so good. This is one that they could easily have had just tiles out for everything, for the archers, for the horses, for everything else. But no, they made the miniatures for this. So whenever you're done, you look at it, you built this terracotta army. Mm -hmm. And it looks so good on the board. The decision you have to make, I, I mean, my whole joke is it has a rondelle, boom, I'm in. I, I want to play that. And this does. And I need to get back into this and play this game again. Because it was a great experience because you had so many decisions, but it wasn't overwhelming like we just talked about in Arborea. It has just the right amount of decisions to make as to what you want to do each turn. So, yeah, this is going to come out during uh, Christmas. This doesn't strike me as a game that overstays its welcome either. It has a yeah. set fixed number of rounds with variable scoring at the end of each round. And that scoring is typically going to be based on the alignment and arrangement of things in the Terracotta Army, which is a little, I think it's a seven by seven grid in the top right of the yes. board. You've also got the inspectors, the two red pawns moving on the X and Y axis that are going to score things at the end of the round based on who has majority and presence in each of the lines or columns that the inspectors are in. You can influence the inspectors. Like they tinker around with a lot of the things that you can do in the game and it all reflects the scoring. I like that. If there's any one thing, if I had to say, oh man, that, I wish this was different. There's a lot going on with the end game scoring. Based on like packs of soldier types in the Terracotta army, who uh, where's there a grouping of warriors who has the most yeah. in that group? They're gonna that's really hard to wrap your brain around <laughs> when you're just playing the game and making your decision. Oh, I want to put them here because, and then you throw in that variable, it's like, oh, maybe I should put them over here. 
that almost comes off as too much to consider, but it doesn't spoil the game for me. I really like it. Uh, I love there, there's some toy factor here. Let's be honest. Oh, there's yeah, some toy yeah. factor in getting to like there are horses and little crossbowmen and whatnot. Love the storage solution too. Oh, that that yeah, that's one of the things that really stands out for me. Anytime you need a mini, they basically put them all upside down. They all have a, a square base, and you've got this box. It's a box that fits inside the game box, and there's four rows. And in each row, you just put all the minis face down. And whoever's the first person to get a certain miniature will get more points than other people. And that's listed just on the left of each of the upside down miniature bases. So if I'm the first person to get a warrior, I pick the first one out and it says nine. Okay, great. I get nine points. Tip it right side up and I put it into the army. Mm -hmm. The next one, it's already sitting in the box in that slot. When you're done, the cleanup is just put them all right back into that box and you're ready to go again. That is so nice for a person with OCD, putting those things in there. Oh, it's wonderful. They got the reminder text on the side for what each of them do, how they score, what you get if you pay the little extra for them. What do you think? Uh, one year later, I'm recommending Terracotta Army if you are a Eurogamer. It, it's not exactly like laugh out loud. You know, you're know, mm-hmm. you not going to be negotiating. It's very much uh, you're in your own mind. And sometimes the interaction is the interaction is hoping that the other person doesn't take a space that you want. Or if they rotate a wheel, paying a coin, and they say, you know, I'm going to turn this inner wheel. Like, ah. But they're not necessarily doing it to get at you. They're doing it to make the most efficient play for themselves. And sometimes it just so happens to spoil your plans. I think that it's a fantastic little Euro game. I would recommend it. How about you, King? Same thing. I would recommend it. Definitely, this is one you said as, as well. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It gives you a nice Euro feel, but without the typical Euro time. One year later, that is our thoughts on Terracotta Army. Well, King, it is Christmas time. We're both quite busy. Adventurers, I'm sure you're busy as well. So a bit of a shorter episode today. And hey, it is what it is. We'll be back in action next week. We're going to have some solo land. Well, two weeks from now, uh, we'll be. We'll have some solo land going down for you. Another big review Mm -hmm. game. But a short one today, and it's been fun. (laughs) Well, Patrick, at the end of each one of our episodes, we like to take a look and see how we leveled up since the last time we were together. So I'm going to give it to you. How did you level up this time? Well, it's a bit PAX related. You know what? I keep thinking back to talking with Keith from Thunderworks Games and the fact that Keith gave us the hook up. Oh, yes. Now, Adventures, many of the games that we review on the show, it's either because like we kickstarted it and we're just, we're happy to have it and we want to talk about it. But many times it's because it's been provided to us by a publisher. We don't raise money, so we don't have a Kickstarter. So we don't have like this endless flow of cash to just keep getting games. So oftentimes when we reach out to a publisher, we like to say, hey, you know, the games that we talk about more often than not, it's because of the generosity and kindness, the partnerships that we've established with folks like you. So, you know, whether you want to provide us a game or not, we'd like to thank you for your time and blah 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 well keith has uh, long been a friend well much like a, a who do you, who's your hookup with whiz kids oh mitch yeah mitch okay so i'm thinking of keith but then instantly i was like oh well we got mitch oh and kess uh, uh the guys from kesco have been really oh, cool yes. with it solace game studio just got a space line steven jackson games has got us some stuff and i thought i can't narrow it down to to just thunderworks for example mm-hmm. my level up is that like Coming to realize at PAX that we've established some really cool, not just partnerships, but some friendships yes. with some of these publishers. And their their kindness, their generosity in in letting us have a game, have, you know, have a review copy, mm-hmm. even if it's one to pass on, that's really cool. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like uh, we've leveled up. What you got, King? Well, mine is, okay, a little more personal here. 
I once again am hitting the stage and I'm lead in the seven year itch. I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. Then I got the script. Oh dear God, what did I just sign on for? There are a lot of lines to learn in this thing, but mm. I'm so excited to be working with this great crew, great number of actors, and excited to be back on stage doing this again. It's been quite a while. Getting back on stage, that's my level up. Oh, good luck and break a leg. Thank you. Hey, Adventures, thank you for joining us for episode 116 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. If you didn't go back last week, we talked all the games, uh, the well, not all the games, all the shenanigans that we had going on at PAX. <laughs> Get on back, listen to that side quest. We had a great time. At some point in the near future, King, we got to do uh, the best of 2023. Maybe get, uh, get the whole gang oh, together yeah. for that. That'll be fun. That sounds like a good one there. Well, in the meanwhile, uh, Zachy Poo, if you've got the time, hit me up on BGA. We'll play some more Onitama. King, you get the last word. I've been binging Ted Lasso lately. This is just like a warm bowl of chicken noodle soup each time you watch it. Just makes you feel good all over. So I looked right. it up here and I got all these different quotes from it. So here we go. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? It's got a 10 second memory. Don't let those things in this past year hold you back. Go back. Make the next day your best day ever. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.